Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, it is the 7th of December, and I'm back here for the first time in a couple weeks with Tammy and Andy. Uh, last week we had Teku Lee on, and that was just me talking to him about some of the data about the Asian American vote and what had happened in 2016 and 2020. But, you know, the family's back together. We're here to uh, <laughs> pontificate. And to give you non-evidence-based, non-data-based <laughs> <laughs> opinions on everything. Uh, so, yeah, how are you guys doing? How, how have the last two weeks been? I've, I've, I've felt uh, I, it's good to see both of you. I know. Yeah. Missed you guys. Oh, my God. It feels like it's been forever. <laughs> Cammy, where are you? You look like you're in a log cabin in Twin Peaks or something I know. Like that. I'm in a wood-paneled rental on the ocean yeah. trying to get some yeah. work done. How are you guys cool. doing? Everything good in Philly and Berkeley? Yeah, our semester is over, so I'm just exhausted uh, and looking Grading. forward to the next yeah next few weeks off from teaching. But uh, yeah. I don't know. I feel like I've already like said yes to too many things already, and I have no idea how I'm going to get everything done. But I'm sure you guys are in the same boat with your stuff. No, I've been saying <laughs> no. Doing nothing. Saying no, I've, been, saying no. <laughs> I've been doing a lot of nothing. <laughs> I was like, uh, we did have our first big outbreak here in Berkeley of coronavirus, and um, you know, it was, uh, it was. I didn't. Did you know that these? I. It was. It was so typical in the sense that, like, it was not at the university because not that many people are at the university right now. It was not in a retirement home or like a skilled nursing facility because there aren't that many in the city of Berkeley itself. And those that do exist generally cater towards like a wealthier population. So they're better, uh-huh. but it was in this horse track. So there's like a oh horse track God. on the edge of Berkeley. It's like, you have to go under what? the 80 highway. Yeah. Yeah. You have to drive through a homeless encampment and then there's a horse track there. Me and my friends 10 years ago, 12 years ago, when we used to live here, we used to go there and, you know, gamble. But, um, there's 360 people who live at the horse track and they're called wow. horse people. They're like, that's the actual official name for them. They live above the stables. Um, huh. oh my and God. there was a massive outbreak amongst those people, the horse people. So like 300 and <laughs> 300 and something cases of coronavirus, oh somebody died and a lot of people are hospitalized. And it's like, you know, I don't know. It, it really emphasized what the pandemic is for, me and for I think a lot of my neighbors as well just being like there are almost no essential workers here in Berkeley because you know it's so expensive to live here and yet the one place there are essential workers living in congregate setting is at the horse track and of course that's where the outbreak is you know um what are they people wait so they all work like they like take care of the horses and yeah they take care of the horses Uh, yeah they're horse they're they're officially called horse people wow and as far as I can tell, they're sort of nomadic. You yeah. know, they go from like track to track and their kids living there. You know, they have families. Um, I don't know if this term is like acceptable anymore, but, you know, it's sort of like a gypsy type of. Mm. Is that an OK term to use? I think Roma. I think so. <laughs> but it's kind of like um. migrant farm workers, right? Where you work a seasonal cycle. In different yeah, I was going to ask, are they immigrant? <laughs> let's just start, let's go away from the gypsy thing. <laughs> I've been reading a lot of I've been reading a lot of Tintin and gypsies oh, factor right. heavily into Tintin. But um, okay. I've been watching the, I, Blinders, so, the yeah. Wobblies used to call these kinds of workers uh, gypo. 
out of just oh boy. <laughs> let's not call it that. Yeah, I know <laughs> enough to not say that word. <laughs> um, but I would say that they are, yes, much like the people who pick the grapes in Sonoma County are migrant workers who live in dormitories. And they go from vineyard to vineyard, mm -hmm. region to region. And then in the new region, they live in a different dormitory. This is the same, similar with horse people where they go from track to track. And yeah. at the tracks, they have places that are built out for these people to live. Um, and yeah, it's a huge, it's by yeah. far the biggest outbreak. Um, it accounts for like 30% or so of wow. the total cases we've had in the city since March. You know, it all happened in like a week. And so- yeah. uh, are, they, are they immigrant? Or is that known? Yeah, it's almost all Latino. Oh, wow. um, Are you and, guys one of the counties that's under the new Cali lockdown then because of this? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, not because of this, but because, you know, they can. And so it's interesting. Okay. I because it was based they, on rates. Gotcha. It's based a little bit on hospital capacity, mm -hmm. like ICU capacity. But even that's not so bad around here. Mm. And so you have this like kind of split. And both sides have like a decent argument where... Um, they shut down all outdoor dining here, which seems totally oh, wow. unnecessary because our positive rate is like 1.5% or something like that. It's oh, like nothing great. comparatively. Yeah. Interesting. And then uh, even with this horse people outbreak, you know, like the horse track outbreak, 1.5%. And all these businesses spent all this money setting up outdoor dining, you know, and they just shut it down. Unbelievable. Um, wow. And you're just like, well, why did you do that? You know, like, why why are you having such an intensive uh, lockdown when the science doesn't quite back it up? And then on the other end, you have like this horse track that's overrun with coronavirus. That's like, you know, I can drive there in like three minutes, well, not three minutes, but six minutes, let's say, you know. Um, and but then the argument is like, well, those people never leave the horse track anyway. And so you have this like oh amazing class divide where like the argument is actually correct that the city itself is unaffected because of people live in dormitories in a horse stable. So <laughs> you know? And that's what the that's what this that's what the pandemic is kind of like, you know, yeah. it's like if you really look at a, at a granular level, it's these massive outbreaks in these places and those places are somewhat generally segregated from the general population and that when the outbreaks get really bad is when those things spill over they get so bad that they spill over into like the general population yeah. which hasn't happened here yet but that's what they're afraid of yeah. you know um are, are so i assume the local like small businesses are freaking out uh as you said like they spent all this money to set up outdoor dining they were told that they could open and now they're yeah. like this is like Everything is being yanked from underneath them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, let me tell you, they also shut down playgrounds, and my parent group is oh livid. wow, but it's like <laughs> we don't have that like you know, <laughs> But that sounds so like uh, it sounds so trivial in some sort of way. But it's yeah. another thing where you're sure. like, well, they shut down playgrounds at the beginning because they felt like all of this was contact based, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not. And so then, what is the argument for shutting down yeah. a playground? Like, it's very difficult to figure out what the possible argument could be. And for parents with young kids like myself, having the playgrounds be open was like a godsend, you know, and now they're yeah. closed. And the uh, the answer when you ask is this sort of like, well, we listen to science here in Berkeley. And you're like, well, can you point me to the fucking science then, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, but then you don't want to get too far on the other end because then you feel like a reactionary. Right. Um, you know, you don't want to, like, can you imagine if I joined like a open the playgrounds protest? <laughs> <laughs> parents in berkeley it'd be amazing 
But you know, I, I wouldn't want to be photographed. Yeah. I wouldn't want to be photographed at that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> at that protest. Um, okay, so we have a couple things that we wanted to talk about today. Um, one of them is related to, you know, not related to the outbreak here, but related to coronavirus, which I think should be the biggest story in the country. Um, and I guess is at this point, right? Don't you think? Yeah. People don't really care about like Biden's transition team. Um, I've, I've tried to adopt like a Zen attitude towards all Biden transition team cabinet <laughs> pick news. I'm like, I'm not going to get mad about it. And I'm going to give them 15 strikes. You know, that was the number I have in my head. <laughs> I'm just going to like so many. It's hilarious. I'm going to ignore 15 bad news. things, <laughs> And then on the 16th, I'll get mad. I'm at like nine right now, you know. Um, I was excited about Javier Becerra, though, for HHS. That was like sure. actually somewhat decent. Yeah, okay. he's not bad. Yeah. He's not bad. Yeah. Anyway, I have no yeah. idea who these people are. He's people? not one of the 15 J will yeah. use his peremptory strikes. I'll, 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 I'll delete a strike. So now I'm at eight. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what happens when um, you get to 15, by the way? I don't know. I'll probably tweet. I'll tweet uh, <laughs> once or twice or something like that. I'll get, I get so mad. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, and then the second part of the show we're going to talk about, we're going to do a new thing that we hope to do periodically, which is we're going to have like a film corner. I don't know if a corner is right, but we're going to talk about great, <laughs> great films in Asian American history. <laughs> and the first one that we're going to start oh my off God, with we're committing is, to a segment. Is, <laughs> is Better Luck Tomorrow. Um, so we're going to talk about that. Better luck tomorrow. I'm very excited to talk about. Yeah. Uh, we all watched so it again over the over the past weekend. Yes. And so we should be ready for that. Okay. Our first topic today is about uh, something that's been happening, not just recently with this recent surge in coronavirus, but has been happening throughout, which is that it seems like the disparate and the heterogeneous sort of impact that the virus has had has had has claimed a somewhat predictable but still tragic victim, which is uh, Filipino nurses, right? And now the history of Filipino nurses nursing here in the United States is very long. And it's, you know, it's not, I would not even say it's particularly complicated, right? Like it is a job that a lot of people in the Philippines take on. They get nursing licenses. They come to the United States. They either come over as OFWs, right? Or they come over um, on visas and then they settle down and um, as we talked about in the episode with Oliver Wong about how the Filipino DJ sort of culture got started, mm -hmm. it's similar. Um, part of the reason why uh, a lot of Filipino immigrants post-1965 ended up moving to places like Daly City is because it's close to a lot of the hospitals in the Bay Area in San Francisco. And um, a lot of those people working as nurses. Yeah. And so they wanted to be close to, to work. And then you have like a micro community of people who all work in the same industry. Um, it seems like, uh, so there are a few articles that have come out recently. One of them was from MedPage today. I want to read a little bit about it before we talk about it, which is, um, and it reads, the odds of being exposed to the virus tend to be higher for Filipino nurses and healthcare workers. One reason for their vulnerability is based on sheer numbers, particularly in California and New York. One-fifth of California nurses are Filipino, and according to a ProPublica analysis of 2017 census data, 25% of Filipinos living in New York work in the healthcare industry. The types of jobs they take also increase the likelihood of exposure. A 2018 Philippine Nurses Association of America survey found a large portion of respondents working in bedside and critical care 
And a stat report noted that, quote, because they are the most likely to work in acute care, medical, surgical, and ICU nursing, many philams are on the front line of care for COVID-19 patients. Um, Ray Tagweg uh, of the of the Bulosan Center for Filipino Studies at the University of California Davis recently told NBC News that in addition to the low rates of testing in their communities, Filipino nurses are also more likely to reside in multi generational households, which makes them and their families more vulnerable to the virus. And so, um, the statistics on this stuff is pre- are pretty grim, right? Like it seems like uh, they are sort of taking on the brunt of um, of the deaths, a lot of the infections among healthcare workers. Uh, yeah. Well, Tammy, you brought this up to us. Like, well, what about it was interesting to you? Yeah, I was um, struck by some articles that were floating around that were based on this national nurses United report. Um, NNU um, for folks who don't know is um, one of the largest nurses unions in the country and it's very progressive. Um, and it's for, I think one of the first times has Filipina, um, rank and file leadership in the union. Um, And they had written a report in which they said that 67 of the 213 registered nurses who've died of COVID are Filipino, right? And then it Mm -hmm. kind of blew up into a bunch of these articles. So I wanted to get your guys' take, especially kind of coming off of Andy's interview with Merlin from Columbia about disproportionality and disparity discourse. Um, Because, you know, how are we to understand these statistics? Is it, you know, do we do it through this race frame or are there historical or material factors that we can, you know, put, pull in to complicate this analysis? Um, Andy and I did some historical reading um, based mostly on, I think the key book in this on this is Empire of Care by Catherine Sinisa Choi over at, at Cal. Um, and in that book, it's really good. She talks about, I haven't actually looked at it in a while, but um, she talks about the Filipino nursing program as basically a product of U.S. colonization. We can't, of course, forget that the Philippines was a U.S. colony. And um, basically, the U.S. set up, as they were setting up all of the colonial military framework, a training program that would like use the Philippines as a, a way to groom medical personnel, chiefly nurses. And we sh- I guess we should also clarify that like the data that Jay just read off and that has been in these reports is about registered nurses, but there's also LPNs and other sorts of healthcare workers that yes, CNAs, are not included yep. in this yeah. data, which is yeah. huge, right? Like the fact that RNs live with LPNs and CNAs and orderlies in extended networks of what family is... healthcare workers is a big deal too. Sorry, what does LPN stand for? Oh, sorry, licensed practical nurse, which is like a rung below registered nurse. Huh? So what? Yeah, is... And CNA is certified nursing, nursing assistant, assistant. Yeah. which is like the lo- they're the lowest rung of healthcare. Yeah, so, so there's like. So they're all certified on some level, but they're just like different past yeah. different tests. Is that it's it? all okay. through licensure at the state and federal at the state and federal level. But you know, obviously, RNs and like nurse practitioners are like higher than those. But yeah, I just bring that up because you know when we talk about like the extended family and we talk about you know Filipinos being involved in healthcare generally, it's like you might yeah. be an RN who lives with like three other people who do healthcare work, right? So it's super yeah. deadly for under COVID, but. Yeah, just back to the historical point, like we can see that the U.S. is interested in setting up the Philippines as like a healthcare grooming, basically colony, (laughs) you know, in the early 20th century. And then that bleeds into also this in the same way that like Korean and other Asian, you know, countries that have been occupied by the U.S. military had like U.S. military based migration. There was like healthcare migration, U.S. military migration through like military wives and dependents. And then like a formal 
you know, a healthcare flow under the Marcos regime after 65. Um, yeah. I was reading a migration policy report, and in 1980, there were 500,000 Filipinos, so half a million Filipinos in the U.S., and just a couple of years ago, there were 2 million. So that's, that's crazy. That's a right, quadrupling yeah. since 80, yeah. right, in our lifetime. So, um, yeah, I guess, you know, my... I'm very concerned, obviously, about like what these stats seem to suggest are obviously like a disproportionate impact. Um, But I think also, yeah, we need to talk about like why are Filipinos doing the most dangerous parts of their professions and why are they living in situations that make them more vulnerable to COVID and what can we do to address that instead of just focusing on the sort of like Asians and black people are more susceptible. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Go ahead, Andy. No, so before we get there, just to really quick on the history thing, the one thing that, you know, I, I haven't read uh, Catherine uh, Sneeza Choi's book, but just she's like everywhere on these articles. Mm-hmm. So she must have like, good job on cornering the market, Catherine. Um, she, <laughs> Every the, academic dream. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, no, um, no. The, the thing that jumped out to me in terms of things we've been talking about all year is that we talk about the 1965 Act all the time. And that's a big part of it. But the other half of it has to be what's going on in the sending countries. And because like 165 opens up the doors, it doesn't mean all countries send uh, people over here, right? It has, we have to understand what's going on in the Philippines itself. Um, So that, that, that kind of jumped out. uh, There, there's something going on in terms of like the Philippine economy, depending upon emigrants sending remittances back home, et cetera, in a way that's Philippine specific, that, that kind of is responsible for that dynamic. Totally. Um, I don't know. I mean, Jay, what were you about to say? Well, yeah, I mean, the it, it's a lot based on the OFW, which is Overseas Filipino Worker Economy, right? And that is everything from people who sing on cruise ships in Macau, right? Um, like sort of bands right. to, but the biggest export, obviously, biggest labor export is nursing. Um, it is also like maid services in Hong Kong. It has tons of OFWs are all the, the majority of which I don't know if it's a majority, but a large portion of which are Filipinos. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Create a remittance yeah. economy within. Uh, I don't know. One of the most interesting things I've been to was when I was in Hong Kong for a little bit. And on every Sunday, you know, it's the only time that the OFW Filipino maids get off. Yeah. You know? And yeah. it's a completely female population. And so, you go to, they all hang out and have picnics in this one park mm-hmm. in Hong Kong. And uh, because it's a totally young female population, gender, sexual, polit- not polit- I don't know, expressions are, are super interesting. You know, yeah, it's yeah. very bush in a lot of ways. And, um, yeah, totally. and uh, I had a, you know, it was, it was, it was great. To, I, don't, I don't know what the right term is, but it was super interesting to see something that I had not known existed. But here in the United States, the main import is medical workers. It's uh, yeah. nurses. I think the interesting part about it was to me, you know, like we can get into the stuff about Merlin and how to, you know, process this stuff and if we should process it through, um, you know, like ethnicity or or country of origin or whatever. I mean, I, I, in a little bit, but um, I don't know. For me, it was. I did a little bit of research into this for an article that I ha- am writing that should be out actually somewhat soon. And, you know, one of the things that I looked into was the way in which like nursing operates in skilled nursing facilities where a lot of these infections and deaths happen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are different types of nurses just as there are different types of everything. There are administrative nurses who kind of 
go on, out and they tell the other nurses what shifts to work. They sort of take care of them. Right. You know, they have an administrative role. And then there are bedside nurses um, who give bedside care. And it does seem like older nurses in the United States tend to, who do the administrative work, tend to not be the young Filipino nurses that are, um, you know, that Filipino yeah. nurses tend to be more like administrating actual bedside care, like, you know, IVs, all that sort of stuff. So they are a little bit more at risk. Now, I don't know personally if that's because, you know, some sort of systemic thing where, you know, like the white people are running the nursing or even like the black black nurses. Obviously, there's tons of black, like nursing is a very diverse mm-hmm. profession. But, you know, I will just say anecdotally, the people that I met who were in COVID units, you know, in skilled nursing f- facilities, almost all those people are Filipino. And all of them worked, lived, their husbands, wives were also Filipino, you know, uh, nurses, and they lived in households where almost everybody worked in the healthcare field. So I think that is sort of the, the core yeah. of this, right? It is, it's like both structural, but it's also sort of, you know, sociological into in the I don't know if that's the right term either, but I'm like throwing out all sorts of terms <laughs> I don't know what they actually mean today. But you're talking about it's the- also within it's also within like the family units yeah. and yeah, how sure. and how they live. Yeah. You're talking about the Bay Area is where you did the the reporting? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean so I think it's also true in New York as well. Yeah. yeah so very I think, geographic. I think that's actually the point, Jay, that so I, I actually did float this to Merlin um at because uh, Tammy was kind of curious what he would say. And I think like the the point that Merlin, for the listeners yeah. who don't know, is a uh, is Andy's friend. He's a Bennett. What should we say? He's like a Marxist historian <laughs> at Columbia. He's, and, he's teaching uh, in the school of public, public health at Columbia, health. so he actually uh, understands okay. science. Uh, but he also he did a lot of he did some work with Adolf Reed about you know the way in which we should talk about this in terms of race, right? Yeah, and, and especially um, how it affects bad metaphor, I guess. Um, <laughs> how, it, how, it, how it impacts medical racial discourse. Yeah. And um, uh, for those who don't know who Adolf Reed is or what this conversation is, essentially the conclusion <laughs> is that by heavily racializing and this only, only discussing this in terms of racial disparities, that you have missed a lot of the questions at hand, but you also have mischaracterized it in some way in which you're arguing also that like, middle class and upper, you know, and, and, uh, and upper middle class, wealthy black people are, are at the same risk as poor black people, right? Like, I don't think anyone actually thinks that, but by just saying X race is more disproportionately impacted, that's sort of what you do. And you have these interesting uh, outcomes, like, so here in Oakland, right, or in the East Bay, Oakland certainly is not a entirely wealthy black population, but certainly there's middle class black families as well. Um, as well as, you know, uh, working class and, you know, people who live in, in pretty poor neighborhoods. But the positivity rate amongst the black population in the East Bay is very low, you know, mm-hmm. so like it's, but within, within Latino communities, it's super high. But even within the Latino communities, it's not like people who have been here two generations or even people who, uh, who are getting infected. It's like the Mayan population from um, one part of Guatemala is like, totally overrun you know Mm -hmm. and so by just saying latinos are disproportionately impacted you miss that type of nuance and the mayan population doesn't really you know they're not native spanish speakers either right so they speak a language called mam mom right and uh so if you say the latinos and the spanish speakers are 
are adversely affected, let's reach out to that community and you miss the nuance that it's actually one population within the Latino community in Oakland, then you're, all your efforts are worthless, right? So that's basically the argument I think that Merlin and Adolf Reed are putting forth. Yeah, I think the conclusion is kind of a lot of the stuff you're already talking about, that we want to get to specific details, geographic specificity, occupational specificity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't want to like belabor and like lecture to you guys, but just for the listeners to just kind of like take two, one step back quickly, the, 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 the thing that is potentially not even worth criticizing because I don't want to sound negative, but worth um, probing further is like this basic statistic that Tammy um, gave us something like, you know, there's 200 of, of all these deaths, um, 200 RN deaths, like 50 are Filipina, Filipino, and that's disproportionate. Mm-hmm. Um, and the takeaway at that level of just, just, just that statement, which you'll see in like, you know, newspaper reporting, it's very ambiguous what that means, right? And it could be something like, well, no matter where COVID goes, it is disproportionately affecting, uh, you know, Black, Filipino, Latino, like peop- the, the nurses who are of color. Um, and, and then kind of race becomes the explanation through which you understand this stuff. The other explanation could be something like, well, not the whole country isn't equally white, Black, Filipino in every single you know, state, city, district in the country. In fact, like we think probably most, like the, the heavy concentration of Filipino nurses are parts of California, New York and New York City and like Northern Jersey, which also happened to be, you know, the hardest hit by COVID last year. So the mechanism- Well, not California, but yes, New York and New Jersey. Right, yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and, then, and then if you look at the numbers, yes, they're disproportional, but I think, I think, I think the one thing Merlin was sort of saying is, it's become a very like fashionable thing to say something like, you know, black people or, or Filipino people or Asian people are 10% of the population at large. And then this thing is more than 10%. Yeah. And somehow that equals racism. Right. Um, and he thinks, he just kind of thinks that's, you know, that's not the full story. Um, and the, so the other, other explanation could just be like, well, logically, if New York city is hard, is hit hardest, in the whole country, that would also logically mean there are more Filipino nurses being hit yeah. proportionally, right? And yeah. then, and yeah. and the the takeaway is basically, if your explanation is race, then your solutions will be race based, and like I don't even know what that means. Like a Filipino based solution, would, I don't know what that means, right? But if your explanation is about economic disparities, <laughs> or, or economic inequalities, or geographical disparities, then your solution could be something about like how do we um, reduce those inequalities between like the worst hit hospitals in Northern Jersey versus New York state or something like that. Um, so, I mean, it's really just kind of that, that level of argument. I think that's useful, but I also think like the acknowledgement of just racial disparities on their face in these sorts of statistics, however simplified it is, can lead us to productive conversations around labor segmentation and like geographic concentration, housing patterns, because those are racially determined in some sense, like historically, right? And so like, why is it that if we have a pool of nurses who all have the same qualifications, who all speak English, who can do all of the A to Z things that are required of RNs, are Filipino nurses doing the most dangerous tasks among those RNs, right? Like that's, to me, that's a reasonable like racial question. But yeah, I I definitely think like, Merlin and Adolf Reed's like analysis is super helpful. We're also like, uh, I can't say Merlin's last name, so I keep skipping it, but like, I feel bad. Yeah. Merlin C. He Chow has a funny, Chow 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 he has a funny Chow story, Chow but I don't know if he yeah. wants me to say it for the public. 
That's okay. We don't have uh, to anyway, ask him that. But so that's why yeah. I've been calling him Merlin. But um, um, yeah, yeah. yeah, but I Merlin, like so. how, yeah, basically, Sorry. like their anal- their you know critique gets us away from a biological determinism, which I think we don't want to be at. So I really right. appreciate that. Right. But I and do I, think there are things that you know it highlights. And I think it's worth oh, sure that the the general public and some people in the public, uh, like public commentators, have more or less done a sloppy biological determinism totally. a lot of this stuff, right? Yeah. Oh, for sure, yeah. And, like, that's, that's I don't think that's debatable. At the same time, I also don't, you know, if you look at, like, some of the old, you know, if you want to go deep, dig deep and think about, like, you know, the pamphleteer times in the, you know, in the in the factories at the, you know, revolutionary Marxist going oh, around. Oh, hell yeah, Jay. Part of the arguments <laughs> that they're making is that, like, you know, they're saying, all right, in this one factory, basically every single job that is a management job or every job that's like a safe job is done by white people and all the dangerous jobs are done by black workers right and so you have to acknowledge that in some way like so you have to actually argue that but the problem is that just by pointing out racial disparities you don't actually find that specific problem right and so within nursing i think that part of the problem is that a lot of the bedside care is done yeah by Filipino nurses. And so the Filipino nurse that I talked to who is working in a COVID unit, you mm-hmm. know, she was, she used to be in on the administrative side and she just said she got bored doing it. She didn't like doing it. You know, like that's not like the style of nursing that she wanted to do. And so she wanted to be a bedside nurse. And so maybe there is some sort of cultural element to it as well, you know, mm-hmm. and um, th- that is anecdotal. And certainly like if the pay is the same, then the pay is the same, you know, but um and I'm sure that the administrative probably get paid more or whatever, but like, I don't know, like this, these, you know, I yeah. don't have nursing scale, I, pay scale tables it, at the top of my head, but it's worth like those types of questions are worth yeah. investigating. Yeah. But the problem with like just doing a, Hey, this percentage of the population is X and these, this percentage of people have died is that you have elided that, yeah that question altogether. And you, and, and, it's like a it's like a mic drop type of moment right (laughs) yeah and then so when people are like well why does this happen and then the answer is always well because of like structural racism then we don't get anywhere in that type of conversation and so but at the same time i will say and maybe this is me just growing older and a little bit more accepting of these things is that the country is wired to respond to those types of they feel very emotional about those types of things you know and so like it's it's not worth i think that just sort of throwing it all away and saying this is stupid gets away from like what people actually respond to and what people respond to i don't know why you know like i don't know why one percentage being bigger than another percentage is the only thing way that racism is like described in these (laughs) anymore when did that start like it's so weird to me it's like like x percentage of this city is 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 x race and you know uh the percentage of the people in Y profession are are, yeah. are this, and therefore we must make it all like this sort yeah. of equity talk is so bizarre to Everything me. Everything has to be the but, same. It's weird, yeah. But it is the it is the <laughs> way that people talk about this stuff and process it, you know. And so I don't know. I find it all to be very confusing and and thorny. But um, but this issue really does exist, and I, I think it does highlight a lot of what we talk about on the show, which yeah. is just. Well, what's the proper way to do this? We don't want to be like class reductionists and just say like, we should not even talk about them as Filipino nurses. Right. You know, we should just talk about them as workers. Like, come on. <laughs> you know, like, nobody, nobody thinks that. Everyone, yeah. Anyone who has like been to a hospital understands what a Filipino nurse is, you know? Yeah. Um, Tammy, do you think these numbers are going to change now that the, that the uh, you know, that 
coronavirus has changed so much now that it's like in the West, now that it's in the Midwest, yeah, you know, exactly. and now that it's it's outside of uh, it's outside of the places where Filipino nurses generally are. I mean, sorry, really quick interruption. The, the other thing I was pointing out is like if you look at the absolute numbers, it's still white nurses who are dying more. It's just disproportionately less. Right. But like to get to like Barbara Field's point, you know, which you talked about a few episodes ago, it's like you don't want to make it sound like this is a problem that only affects um, yeah. one group and does not affect white people. Because then politically, what are you doing? You're just erasing like white deaths um, where this could be like a point of solidarity around all nurses who work under, you know, dangerous conditions. So anyway, yeah. all, all nurses who work under dangerous conditions, lives matter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All, or for short, all lives matter. Yeah. <laughs> We're getting dangerous. Good job, Tammy. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, I, no, I do. I, to your point, Jay, I do think like with the geographic broadening, there probably will be a change in these stats. And I think another complicated thing about around the role of nurses, like especially in skilled nursing facilities and nursing homes, specifically nursing homes that we've seen is that some of those like hierarchical and like job distinctions do have broken down during this crisis. Like, I don't know if you found that in your reporting, Jay, like I've heard that a lot from people who work inside nursing homes because they're basically saying when a, there is a COVID outbreak, like everyone sort of does all the bedside stuff. Everyone does. The oh, yeah. Well, because. Because half of them can't come to work anymore. Well, exactly. So they're, they're so short-staffed yeah. and it's just everyone is scrambling. So in a way that kind of, you know, unravels that piece of like if there is job segmentation among, you know, Filipino nurses. But anyway, that's all just to say I do think like this whole thing around, you know, which races are hit the hardest might start to unspool a bit. It's very difficult because like, I just remember, I found myself getting very frustrated at the beginning of this by a lot of that talk because it seems so based on numbers. And it seemed like a lot of the numbers were um, obfuscating something, maybe yeah. purposefully, right? So I remember very clearly that at some point, a very famous MSNBC commenter, who I won't name because he deleted the tweet, tweeted something about how like 69% of the people had who had died of coronavirus were like black, you know, which was not true at all. <laughs> like what was true was that at the beginning when the virus was really concentrated in New York and New Jersey and in the Eastern seaboard, 69% of the people who had died or 60 something percent of the people who had died lived in counties that were majority that had a disproportionately high number of black residents in them, right. you know, and all sorts of other people who were very famous and have huge followings retweeted this guy saying, this is oh, such boy. a travesty. And then they all deleted it because they all realized that this number was like kind of a ridiculous yeah. number to put out there. And I, I respond to that sort of number and I'm just like, well, why did they come up with that number? You know, like why go through the contortions to why don't, of course, it, black mortality is, is much higher than other races. This is true, you know, um, but why try and come up with like the most incendiary number that you can possibly come up with? And, the, you know, I've actually asked around about this. And the answer is always just about the amount of funding that you get. You know, mm -hmm. if you can make a case that one group is disproportionately impacted, then it changes the amount of funding that goes to that type of group. And when everybody is sort of about this equity talk, right, then that's how that infrastructure tends to bend towards the numbers that are put out within that equity talk. Does that make sense? So, what like, so if, you have one, if you have one frame of interpretation and that is the 
avenue through which money is distributed, then it behooves the people who are trying to get money for their communities in good faith. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like they're, it's not like they're embezzling this money, you know, Mm -hmm. um, maybe some people are, but you know, I, I am of the sense that these people are not acting in bad faith that that becomes sort of the game. It becomes like, how do we take this data and turn it into a, a question of like racial inequity and that's just sort of the way that things work now, I think, in this country, like around these types of issues. But are you talking that, about like foundation funding? I don't. Um, yeah, but also like, you know, where the CDC is going to send its money, you know, mm, um, now that the CDC might be a functioning form of government. Because <laughs> I thought it was more your first point, which I think is really, really true, that that's that is the emotional tug. Like yeah, that's what yeah. Americans respond to. They don't kind yeah. of want to wade through the other complicated stuff. So I, I figured yeah. that that was like, it's, it is a good motivator. It's a good way to get people to care. Yeah. yeah. But the, I think that in terms of like what they're, what the people who make those types of statistics and stuff yeah. are trying to Material. get is like, they're trying to get attention and, 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 and funding and money mm-hmm. to help their communities out, which is admirable. But at the same time, you know, it's it's just like a broken lens through which to see this, yeah. you know, and I think that the exhaustion that people and this is my last point on this. And then um, like, not that we shouldn't talk about it anymore. But this is the only thing I have left to say about it personally, <laughs> is that I think that there's a palpable exhaustion with that type of lens right now. Yeah. In reference to this pandemic, because mm. this pandemic has yeah. hit everybody. Like everybody, mm, yeah. you know, and so like the idea that some people are suffering more than other people is like not is not a message that people a lot of people are willing to uh, think much about right now. Right. And I think that the way that the correct way to do it and the correct way to point it out is to just tell the truth about it and just say it's essential workers you know it is people who are going it's people in prisons it's people who work in meat processing plants still that hasn't changed yeah. you know like that that was it true at the beginning it's true right now um it is immigrant communities like corona queens or like you know like Fruitvale neighborhood of oakland that are getting hard hit like places around the rio Grande valley like which were hard hit in the summer Places in Southern California, south of San Diego, like near the border, those places are, are wiped out by COVID. And that if you can make that argument, you can epidemiologically prove that that's where they are. I think that people will draw the right conclusions from it. But the problem is that those all have to be filtered through broad racial categories at this point. And I think when they are processed, put through the broad racial categories, that it actually sort of metastasizes the argument into something else, you know? And it is not about like what places are suffering the most. It becomes about like what is how how is America racist again? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And like I don't think that people are willing right now. Maybe I'm speaking for myself here. I'm like not quite willing to like accept like uh, the only thing that we should take away from the coronavirus is how racist America is um, broadly. You know, I want to know how racist America is towards essential workers. You know, that like that's like a different argument, at least in my opinion. Yeah. And like if you're going to say like these people, nobody gives a shit about them because they're like, uh, you know, they're migrant workers from uh, some part of Mexico or Guatemala or whatever. And they're living in a fucking horse stable in Berkeley, California. I'm all about that. Like, I think that that is 
true and that is an interesting conversation but like just like broadly saying like x group is more affected like i just don't think that's a that 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 that's effective right now do you Hmm. i mean i wonder just to get back to the original anecdote you started with jay about the horse people like i feel like you know if you were to ask like a state government city government person they would say like we know that this is not in every neighborhood but for preventative reasons we do want to shut down everything because we don't want a super spreader event to happen. But then the messaging behind that or the logic is always that like this this stuff is like we're all in this together and that we should kind of assume that if corona does hit, it, it hits in an even way, right? And so yeah. then that kind of creates this baseline expectation that provides a sort of outrage when we see these disparity numbers. Um, and or, or there's that and there's just like this general argument that liberalism um, assumes that every part... Of, a, of the country will be like, you know, equally white, black, uh, Asian, Latino as every other part of the country. And that is a, that is a bad flattening framework, but whatever, for whatever the reason, like there's something about, yeah, people's expectations are set up to be outraged or surprised when you have these sort of uneven, um, figures when, if you look at the, the science or the, you know, the, what, what we do know is like, we should expect it to be uneven and to have like small, oh, yeah. small clusters yeah. and yeah. that or huge clusters. Yeah. And that mismatch yeah. I think is producing this outrage. And I don't, yeah, I think it is a good question, like whether or not it's productive to, to keep going, kind of going back and forth between this, you know, assumption that things should be even and equal, but on the other hand, and, and also like, you don't want to stigmatize neighborhoods. You don't want to stigmatize certain groups or oh for sure yeah so that's another reason that they don't say like it's this building where it all happened right um so i don't know yeah that's that's a that's a tough those are two competing um interests right in terms of public information but i think the 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 ping-ponging back and forth is is does does kind of produce that outrage that oh there is this disparity or disproportionality so here in the bay area right um I talked to a very, you know, like a very decorated expert here in public health and, um, you know, like epidemiology. And there was this conversation that was happening amongst those people about whether or not they should classify this within this region as a Latino disease. Right. Right. Um, And it's a fascinating conversation to have because the vast majority of cases for a very long time, it's spilled over a little bit at this point where almost entirely within Latino essential worker community, right? And so everybody talking about wearing masks to the supermarket or to like, you know, to like Whole Foods or whatever, totally irrelevant. Well, not totally irrelevant, largely irrelevant considering where these viruses are located. The things that are relevant are that there are 300 people living above a horse stable together, you know, in congregate housing, and that if one person gets sick, they're all going to get sick, right? So... Does that lead to like greater stigma of the Latino community within the Bay Area, if you call it that, you know, um, if you say, hey, the only people who are in Fruitvale, not the only people, but a large percentage of people in Fruitvale, which at some point I think had the highest positivity rate in the world for a neighborhood, um, that it's this it's this one population of mom speakers. Like, what what do you do? You know, like, of course, you're stigmatizing that population. You know, if, if, if like, if someone sees somebody and they could recognize the language they're speaking, they're going to run the other way. Right. Uh, and yet at the same time, you like, you do want to narrowly focus your messaging on the communities that are hardest hit. 
Yeah. And yet, how do you do that without just saying, hey, it's all those people? You know, I don't know. I found that conversation to be totally fascinating. I had no idea what to think of that about it either way. It was like one of those times I was just like, huh, that is an interesting question to ask. You know, and I had no opinion of of what they should do because both options seemed terrible. Yeah. But what would it mean to make that designation? Um, I think that they would just publicly talk about it that way, which they don't, you know, mm-hmm. um, they, they talk about, you know, stay vigilant, wear a mask, yeah. listen to science, yeah. you know, but what they don't say is like, if you're Latino, you're, you're way higher at risk. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, and like, uh, no white people have it, right. you know, like, um, like they, you can't say stuff like that, even if it's true, you know, because then what happens yeah. is like, well, the white people are just like, well, let's just have a fucking party, yeah. you know, and then it does spill over, yeah. right? Well, that's, so, yeah, that's, um, and that is actually a reason not to say that. Yeah, right. yeah. And, it's like I the mean, fucking, think... fr- the other outbreak here was about fraternity kids at fucking Berkeley, you know? <laughs> that was the other right. big outbreak we had. <laughs> well, and it is so geographically dependent, as you've been saying. Like, I'm in rural Oregon right now, and I was in Montana, and like, I've been on the phone a lot this week with, nursing home workers in Montana and they're just, I mean, there is a sizable native population, but otherwise it's just white. And so when they talk about the crisis there, they, we don't talk about race, race disparities because it's not really the main thing yeah. on their minds, you know, like it's more about what happens in nursing homes in counties in particular that are like COVID denying mm. and oh, how yeah. that community spread has mirrored mm. the spread within nursing homes. So I think there's a different discourse in different places depending on, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and yeah. yeah, just to our point, like, I do think like if we just focus on that too much, which is like a sort of coastal or immigrant conversation, like it can be alienating and it can be like inaccurate in describing what's going on. But that's why I think that like there's no silver bullet national response totally. that yeah. makes sense, right? Um, I think that here in the Bay Area, they maybe should do that. You know, maybe they should talk about it in those ways and just hope that the population is, you know, progressive enough not to become reactionary about it. You know, who knows? Um, no, I don't think they are. <laughs> I know. No, I don't think so like either. Super you know, if there's <laughs> one population that was going to be that way, where they're already segregated out anyway, so it's not like you know, like I think I that see. it would be here. But like, um, that's I don't know. The the conversations around the horse people have been really interesting to track around mm. here, just because it does seem like, um, you know. Uh, people are like, I didn't even know that they existed, yeah. which I will be honest. I didn't know they fucking existed either. Who fucking knew? I've been to that horse track to gamble like 20 times in my life. You know, I had no idea that people are living in the fucking horse stables, you yeah. know, yeah. and not just some people, like 350 yeah, so people. people are living in yeah. the, in the horse stable with their families. Um, yeah. I had no idea. And so like, uh, the dynamics of this are, are, if you can't talk, I guess I, the, the only thing I'll say is that if you can't talk about it in that sort of way, you can only talk about it in terms of like who wears masks and getting mad at people who don't wear masks, which I think people should actually do. I was like on the fence about that. But now it's like I found that I'm such a hypocrite every time. I'm just like, let's just be like more, you know, let's just be more compassionate about these things. And then every time I see someone without a mask on, it's like red hot rage. you know. Really? And then half half the time I say something, I'm just like. You know, I was at 7-Eleven and the guy at 7, I, I'm ashamed of this. So like, you know, I'm not proud of this, but the guy working at 7-Eleven had his, his like mask under his nose. And I, you know, I did the asshole thing. No. I was like, that shit, it, Come if on, you man. put it there, it doesn't fucking do shit, you know? Oh my God. And then. <laughs> 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 it's like. <laughs> you work at 7-Eleven, give him a break. 
he, first of all, he owned the Seven Eleven, okay. and secondly, uh, so he was management, Andy. And secondly, you know, like just if you're gonna wear the mask, just wear it properly, yeah, yeah, you know. And yeah. I, I didn't say it like I'm gonna like rat you out on Nextdoor, which is what people here do. Yeah, they have a whole Nextdoor community of like oh businesses God. that that are not that you know. It's like you can imagine who gets like the worst shit. Yeah, you know? oh, it's like the falafel place, you know, the halal spot. <laughs> <laughs> They're just. <laughs> um so yeah um i think that there should be that type of shaving but obviously here that's not the problem the problem here is that you know some people live above a horse stall yeah i guess that's my only point um when i go running people will like i don't run with a mask on i don't think i need to i don't know maybe someone someone will come after me but people go running with like a mask around their neck and they'll like put it on as they run past me like over 10 feet away i'm like you don't actually. Think. Every, it's just part. Yeah, but that's it's like etiquette. Everyone it? does that here. Oh, yeah. Okay. When I'm biking. Andy, like, come on. My, <laughs> yeah. When I'm biking with my kid, uh, I do that. I have really? a mask around my neck and I put. Yeah. Even if yeah. they're on the other side. Because I live around all old people. Oh, you know, wow. And like they're terrified of the virus as they should be. I thought it was and all performative. It's, just, it's, it's like. It's a little sure, it's performative, performative, but in a good way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's performative common okay. courtesy. Yeah. If you kill an old pe- person, I'm not going to feel bad about yelling at the guy who owns a 7 <laughs> in Albany, California. Oh um, all right. Second topic. We have no good transition to this, but let's talk about. Well, <laughs> we can talk about is Filipino, though. So, is he? That's yeah. true. Money ben? Perry Shen is Filipino. No, 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 no. In reality, he's Chinese, Taiwanese, I think. But oh, okay. Anyway, we are going to do this uh, periodically. This is the first movie we're going to do. Better luck tomorrow. Um, why did we decide on this one? So. I suggested this one because we were talking about, I don't know, because we're stupid and we always talk about representational politics and poo-poo it. And then like Andy and Jay were on our group chat talking about the Fast and Furious movies. And I was like, no, let's do the original Justin Lin movie. That's actually good. I didn't actually realize. First of all, the Fast and Furious movies are fantastic. They're fine. They're fine. They're so good. (laughs) They're They're like everything a movie should be. Mm. I will not hear any slander (laughs) about them, but I do think that Better Luck Tomorrow is a better uh, conversation topic. Um, (laughs) All right. So uh, I'm not going to go about introducing this movie very much because hopefully all of you have seen it. If you haven't, then we don't want to spoil it. I guess we're going to spoil it. We're going to spoil it either way. You can give the premise. But it's like a bunch of nerdy high school Asian kids who... Uh, start like a I don't know they like start like a cheating ring and then things quickly spiral out of control and they're dealing cocaine and then they kill John Cho. Um, <laughs> oh wow, you really <laughs> spoiled it. No, it's twenty years. We get to spoil it. Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's all. So they kill John Cho and um, it is it is sort of this iconic film, right? In terms mm-hmm. of Asian America and that it was the first of its kind in a lot of ways. This is not to say there weren't Asian American films before. They certainly were. But this was the first one where it was kind of like a genre film starring not Asians, right? But like straight up like suburban California, Asian Americans yeah. um, that are easily identifiable to anyone who is part of the 1.5 generation or the second generation, which Justin Lin, who is a writer and director who now is like, you know, one of the biggest directors in Hollywood, thanks to the Fast and Furious franchise, was sort of behind, right? Like, uh, mm-hmm. this was the way that he grew up, and this is a representation of what he saw in the world. Now, um, what what did you guys think about this on second watch? I have not seen this, I will say, in like 15 years or something <laughs> like that. So what did you guys think? Tammy, go first. 
I think it just held up so well. Like I was surprised how good it was because I had a vague memory of like seeing it and feeling kind of like, you know, that, that like representational feeling of like, oh, I feel seen. And, you know, even though I wasn't like a drug dealing de- academic decathlete or whatever, but, um, and on this viewing, I just think like as a movie, it's just like really well done. And there were certain things that surprised me. Like I had kind of forgotten about Stephanie, the main love interest having been adopted. Mm -hmm. I had forgotten about like, I mean, it is kind of sexist. Like there's a lot of like male gazy shit that maybe isn't the best, but um, you know, kind of like interesting and exciting, like sex scenes. Like it's, it's just, it's good. It's smart. And um, I think like even, even now making a movie like this is super rare. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's what I was thinking. I was like, it's sort of the only movie that is kind of like this, you know, mm-hmm. where, I mean, outside of the Fast and Furious movies, which Justin Lin also made, but those aren't just about Asian Americans. They just have I think, Asian Americans yeah. in them. Harold and Kumar probably shares the same. Yeah. Right. Yeah. DNA. Yeah. 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 But then those movies stopped after Harold and Kumar. So for me, like I watched it when I think I was 18, 17. I don't, I think I was actually disappointed when I first watched it. Oh, really? I don't think I got it. And I think watching it this time, for whatever reason, I appreciate it a lot more. Because I think I was waiting for them to talk about being Asian. They never do, except mm. for like two or three lines, which we can talk yeah. about. And I think those are important. I didn't realize what he was doing by not talking about the fact that they were Asian, but just being Asian. Um, yeah. I think I, I think I went into it kind of thinking. I remember in high school, you know, these um, it was like the first memes, these like terrible um, like chain letters that your friends would send around. And oh, they're yeah. like... You know you're Asian American if your parents put like the dishes on the on the drip on the dishwasher to dry. And you got those in high school. <laughs> and I, I was like, well, I was hoping for a movie about that, which would have been terrible. But that was like my level of Asian consciousness when I was like mm-hmm. seventeen. Oh, so God, I didn't. I don't think I even had email when I was in high school. Andy's younger than us. Yeah, I know. I know. Tim, <laughs> did you have email when you're in high school? I didn't. Yeah, I had AIM. Yeah, yeah I, I definitely didn't, didn't talk. Then you have email. I didn't talk about Asian American. But you have AOL.com, you have an AOL.com address then. But like, we yeah, didn't but really didn't, use it. I didn't really use it. I just <laughs> yeah. used AIM to talk to like random people in other countries. Yeah, yeah other I did places. that too. <laughs> but, um, yeah, uh, so maybe that's what we should talk about. And we, you know, when this film premiered at Sundance, I believe it is, there was sort of this heated exchange that became pretty well known in which some, we'll play a bit of it right here. So at the third screening at the library, this guy gets up. He praises us about the filmmaking and the performances, and then. I think a lot of times in films, there, there's not enough discourse, you know. And I think this was made for that, and and it, it felt good to actually get that in return. This guy feels like he has the right to tell us how we are supposed to exist in media. And then Roger Ebert gets up. What I uh, find very offensive and condescending about your statement is nobody would say to a bunch of white filmmakers, how could you do this to your people? This film has the right to be about these people and Asian American characters have the right to be whoever the hell they want to be. They do not have to represent their people. It's a historic. Okay, so just to clarify, right, like that is uh, somebody standing up at Sundance and saying, 
this film is really well made, and uh, I don't know why you would make such an immoral film, right? <laughs> that is immoral for Asian Americans. And then Roger Ebert, who apparently is the number one Asian American ally in America, <laughs> yeah, RIP. We lost, we lost one of our sort of gets mad and oh says, like, why are they determined by their race? You know, why does he have to make an Asian American film? Why can't he just make a movie where Asian American characters so just do whatever they the fuck they want? And like, this is sort of the this sort of spills over, right? And Justin Lin's other films which are the Fast and Furious films, are very diverse films, right? Like there's almost everybody. Like I don't know what race Vin Diesel is, but there's Vin Diesel, you know. <laughs> Not quite sure what race He's the every Rock race. is. There's the Rock, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, Tyrese, right? Uh, Ludacris, um, Sung Kang, who is like in this, who is in both of these films. And I think he's stuff. playing the same character, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> he, he holds up. He looks straight out of, he could walk into 2020 and still look cool. From this he was yeah, always yeah, the handsome yeah. one in, in Better Luck Tomorrow, yeah. too. Yeah, yes, yeah. But. So he's, uh, <laughs> in all of these, the the idea of representation is not to stop and do like a conversation mm -hmm. about the representation, right? There's no sort of meditation upon um, <laughs> what all this means that these people are in a movie, right? Or what it all means that they're in this community or what it all means that they're Asian. And all the, and especially, you know, and the same thing, happen in in the fast and furious movies where it's this sort of thoughtless representation as opposed to like thoughtful representation um wesley morris who uh you know um is a friend of mine who i think is one of the best writers in america when he won his pulitzer he won the pulitzer for uh for a piece of criticism he wrote about the fast and furious movies did you guys know this I didn't know that was what he had won for. I agree yeah, he that he won a Pulitzer awesome. for this. Yeah. I mean, I think Wesley should probably win more Pulitzers, you know. But <laughs> the first, the first one he won, 2011, was for this. And I'm gonna read a little bit about it, which is, um, he he's talking about like sort of race movies, and he says, the enormous success of 2009's The Blind Side, in which Sandra Bullock makes a black teenager one of the family, demonstrates that America isn't post-racial. It is thoroughly mired in race. The myths that surround it, the guilt in the, it inspires, the discomfort it causes, the struggle to transcend it. Have you ever seen The Blind Side? It is no. terrible. Yeah, okay. it's terrible. So it's it's the one best picture, right? I don't know, but oh the book God. was pretty good. I, I'm like the biggest Michael Lewis supporter. It's not just because he lives nearby me, but like I think Michael Lewis is great. So the book is pretty good. Uh, <laughs> the Fast and Furious movies, by contrast, are free from this angst. They're basically mm. a prolonged party for a ring of street racing urban car thieves. <laughs> the leader of the ring, Dawn, is a big racially ambiguous mechanic played by Vin Diesel. <laughs> the hero of the movie's first installment in 2001 was Brian O'Connor, a blue-eyed blonde LAPD detective played by Paul Walker. As a classic uh, white cop hero with the surfer boy vibe, he was presumably meant to be the audience point of entry into the world's multicultural car racing world. And so like Wesley goes on mm -hmm. and says, you know, he talks about this idea that like that race is not really ever discussed. And that's sort of what makes it these films successful, right? Mm -hmm. That they are a representation of people who are being themselves. They are not representations of people who are being representatives of their race. Right. Yeah. And that is also true in Better Luck Tomorrow, which is amazing because it is a, Justin Lin was very young when he made it. Um, it's his first film, I believe. And first films are always the one when they're made by like, you know, immigrants or minorities, they're always the ones that are like heavy handed totally. sort of stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, so what do we think? Like, that's, that's like the main point of conversation yeah. that I wanted to have about this. Like, 
Asian American. I was having this. Uh, I was having a. You know, I was having drinks with somebody recently, um, a listener of the show, and she's just like, you know, like a lot of Asian American art movies, books are bad. You know, yeah. and the reason why they're bad is because they're always so bogged down by this like self conscious. How do we represent it? Yeah. How do we stop and talk mm-hmm. about like the race? You know? Yeah. Like, what what do you guys think? Like, do you think that the preferred mode is this kind of like, hey, I'm going to make a fucking gangster movie about high school kids who go off the deep end, you know, Um, and they're all going to be Asian. And uh, outside of them being all Asian, it's basically just going to conform to all the genres of this type of movie, you know, like Point Break (laughs) or whatever it was, you know, like something like that. Um, Or do you think that there is a space for like the type of like serious representation movie? Hmm. Tammy? Well, what did you guys think about The Farewell? I didn't see it. I liked it. Um, Did she win the Oscar or the Golden Globe for that or whatever? Aquafina, yeah, she won something for that. Okay. Uh, I I bring that up because I think like that, I was interested in how that movie kind of represents like like transnational relationships in Asian families in a mm -hmm. way that I didn't find actually super cloying. Like I thought it actually had a naturalness to it. Um, and wasn't super concerned with this thing of like, who are we? Yeah. Except yeah. in like certain comic settings in that film. So um, anyway. I think there's a big difference between 2020 and when this film came out. I think Justin Lin is okay. of a different generation than, uh, I'm sorry, I forget who made the farewell. Lulu Wong, right? Lulu Wong, yeah. Yeah. I think she's much more comfortable with her transnationalness than Justin is. For sure. That's my reading. Um, I don't know. I, I I think there's two, it's a, it's, there's two sides to it. I could, I, th- I think just from what I could tell of seeing interviews and thinking about the movie more and I haven't seen the fast movies, but just the descriptions of them, I think he's very much in the camp of like, we don't have to prove um, anything about being Asian. We just are. And that's good enough. And we're not, we're not Asian. We're Amer- Asian American and sort of like really emphasizing that second part. And I think that, I think there's a downside to that, but why? Cause it's like very assimilationist in some way. It's assimilationist and Asian in this, what's interesting about this film is Asian is only an aesthetic. And I think maybe Stephanie's character is perhaps raising a question about that. Like, what does it mean to look Asian, but not have an Asian family or we know nothing about your family. Like, no, like all these characters, what they have in common is that they just look like each other. That's basically all we know. Um, and there's no, there's no, like, there's no families. Yeah, in exactly. This movie. Yeah. Right. So like, you like, don't meet any of their parents or anything. Exactly. Like there's no, like, there's no scene where like the mom, like, you know, makes like miyakuk and like puts it in front of the kid <laughs> and the kid's like, we do this for the new year celebration. I mean, that's <laughs> actually know? the part of the movie that feels like self-consciously not being representational, right? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, the yeah. absence is the place where he actually acknowledges that. I think, yeah, I think it's trying to cut itself off from like the sort of Maxine Hong Kingston style right. of the previous generation. <laughs> but I think like 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 Farewell is like of a different mode, which is it doesn't have to be that corny. It doesn't have to be that traditional. Are we sure it doesn't have to be corny? That's the question <laughs> I wanted to know. Yeah, I mean, I it's think like, is there something inherently corny? Like, I think I, I kind of agree with you, Andy, that there is something like slightly um glib about the way in which Justin Lin represents different people as just saying, well, they just happen to be represented. They just happen to be of a different race, you know, but they are going to conform to film. And I think that there is an interesting film critical argument to make, which is that perhaps within the genre of film that, you know, that 
because it's a visual medium, maybe that all you really mm-hmm. do have to do is make yeah. sure that the people look different. And that in itself is a statement, which I think is true, which is one that yeah. Wesley makes in his wonderful essay about all of this. I mean, but like, I, I have found it very difficult to find works of art about Asian American experience or about the immigrant experience in general that are like, that have these points where you're just like, okay, now they're going to go into the immigrant shit, yeah, you know? Yeah. And whether it's like the the, <laughs> the MR Asians, you know, like the sort of like red pilled like Asian dudes, they call it the smelly lunchbox story. Yeah, you know, I always right. find that to be really yeah. funny, right? Like where they're like, uh, and they really hate it, you know, they're yeah. like, you don't have to do a smelly lunchbox story. And um, and I think they're kind of right. You don't have to do a smelly lunchbox story. You know, they're wrong about many other things, but I think they're right about the fact that you don't have to do that. But what but, if you want to? Yeah. Well, then I'm just going to find it corny. I think, yeah. I mean, which... so, so I think there's two spots where they talk about being Asian besides Stephanie's character, of course. One is the affirmative action story that Derek runs about, um, about Ben, which I thought was amazing because it's like predicting 20 years in advance Jay's story about how Asians don't like affirmative action. And the second one is a drunk John Cho says, this is where the Asians hang out. And this pisses off everyone and, and, and inspires all this outrage. So basically they hate being, co- I think, I think the fact that they're running away from their Asianness is also a part of being Asian American. So that's actually like, oh, yeah. for sure. that's exactly. quite specific. Yeah. And I think you could say that that is actually the, the particular aspect. And I think the other implied particular aspect is that um, the fact that they are, you know, these mega student, like mega smart students who are only playing to the Ivy leagues is somehow the byproduct of family pressure or pure Definitely. pressure, but that is never explicitly, you know, made obvious. But and then like Derek's parents are in Vancouver, which I thought was hilarious. It's like these absentee mm. sojourning Chinese parents. Yeah, she actually gets at a lot of that. <laughs> I mean, I think the other thing about like Asianness being just kind of aesthetic or surface level in in these films like makes sense to me also because they're masculine films. And they're about masculine relationships that often function on that superficial level. So I think like in that way, it doesn't bother me too much. Like I, it feels right. What do, yeah. what do you mean by that? Like why would masculine what I mean, be superficial? Well, I mean, I think like at some moments in this film and in the Fast and Furious films, there are moments of real connection among the male characters. But in general, because of the way that men you know, stereotypically relate to one another or understood to relate to one another in their relationships on film. I think like Asian Americanness being like an aesthetic signifier makes sense because it, it they basically do just relate to themselves each yeah, other yeah. on a superficial level. Right. So yeah, they're just bros. Exactly, <laughs> they're bros. And you know, the other thing that I will say about this film, where it's like it makes sense, or they don't focus on it very much is mm-hmm. and it feels more true to like the experience of the actual characters not that that matters but that i found to be refreshing is yeah. that they're not in koreatown they're not in chinatown yeah. you know like they're not really in the same they might be in the san gabriel valley but they're not in the current san gabriel valley no. where like, everyone they go to school is chinese like right. they're going to like a pretty white high school right right, right. um and where asian kids are not totally rare but are pretty rare like you know one of the plot things is that um, they say that the main character Ben, who's played by like Perry Shen, yeah. mm-hmm. is uh, is the only Asian on the basketball team, for example, <laughs> yeah. right? And so, like you know, like that makes sense. Where I do think that, as somebody who grew up going to a majority white high school, um, you don't like that's sort of how you just block it out, and then you're just a bro, you know, and mm-hmm. that um, you don't have long talks about what it means to be Asian American. Yeah. 
maybe you start that in college or something like that. But these kids are in <laughs> these kids are in high school, yeah. you know. So um, it it I don't know. I found it, and he's actually like I, I found it to be real. And he's ashamed that the Asians cheer for him. Um, yeah. So like yeah. it's there is a sizable enough Asian population, Asian like there is a sort of beginnings of like an Asian American club, I guess. But it's like shameful, <laughs> right? Like he he like to be cool is to be legitimized. Yeah. I don't know if he wants to be accepted by the white classmates, but he definitely feels like he feels they're like condescending. He doesn't want to be tokenized as an yeah, Asian exactly. player. Yeah. 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 Which I thought was amazing because it's just like um, predicting 20, 20 years in advance. Like this whole oh my God. anti-identity politics. It is politics really thing. advanced. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. No, no. The film, it, I felt, it felt very modern in a lot of ways. Totally. And that was what was surprising about it to me too. was just like, I don't think that there's been 15 other – uh, there's been 15 other Better Luck Tomorrows made, you know, yeah. which is kind of surprising because Justin Lin is really successful. Yeah. He's about as successful as a human being can be, you know, <laughs> and he's about it. Like, I don't know what his financial situation is like, but he's made a lot of money in Hollywood, you know, mm-hmm. and he is like the guy like he's like the Asian. He's also the action guy, which is like a very lucrative thing and he can do whatever he wants. And you would think that other people would just follow this model. You know, they'd just be like, all right, I'm going to make like a genre film that is stars Asian Americans, you know? Um, well, maybe and- like Crazy Rich Asians and like Better, what is it? Better Be My Maybe or what was that called? Uh, yeah, oh, like- you mean Jenny Han's thing? Yeah, like I feel Randall like Park those. And, um, yeah. 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 Oh my gosh, what is it? Better Be My Maybe or whatever. Anyway, like I do think those two movies were kind of trying to do something like yeah. this where like, they are like, let's be like a trashy genre, like rom-com or, you know, yeah, or yeah. like this like wedding movie. Um, and who and can, both of those, by the way, very successful. Now. Yeah. I have not seen Crazy Rich Asians yet. Eh. I like it. But uh, I, like it. I, I did not like the other one, but no, maybe my maybe, whatever it's called. <laughs> I didn't see that either. But, um, but I, yeah, I didn't see Crazy Rich Asians. I think I'm like very bad about that sort of stuff. First of all, I don't really watch that much TV or movies, yeah. but um, the bigger thing is I was just like, I don't want to watch this. It's like, like um, trashy, but it's kind of interesting. I mean, I think it's worth watching. Yeah. Okay. I probably will never watch it. That's fine. But, I like it. I'm, yeah. I, yeah. I might. I'm, yeah. All right. I've already read it. It's not like, it's not like I'm holding out. It's a principle. Yeah. Yeah. I just like when people are like, are you going to watch this? I always say, yeah, sure. I'll watch it. And then I never watch I it. I mean, I will say like Crazy Rich Asians <laughs> is like. I mean, there's other thing that's not talked about in the film. They're not specify what kind of Asian they are, mm-hmm. right? Like they're basically Chinese American, except for Ben. Right. I thought that Crazy Rich Asians ha- took place in Asia. No, Crazy Rich Asians was super Chinese. That's what I'm saying. Uh, and uh, in a way, I, I feel re- like are the characters American? Uh, one is, but it's Chinese diaspora. Oh. That's like that's the point of the yeah. film, oh, okay. in my opinion. Oh, like it's like the farewell. It's basically it's like the chain is what we should focus on. It's not the country. But yeah. with Better Luck Tomorrow, it's like. They don't explain the fact that like Ben randomly has a Filipino last name. Sung Kong does not look Chinese at all. I, I don't know if that's racist to say, but I was like, there's no way he, he and Virgil are actually cousins. Um, and, he does uh, have the most Korean face ever. He just looks, like a, he looks like a Korean badass. Yeah. Um, but yeah, then th- that just gets papered it doesn't over. Matter, which is so great. Yeah. Right. Like, the, the, yeah. like it's just like we just are attracted to each other because we look alike. And then. <laughs> Right, like that's kind of. I think that's kind of the vibe, and then they relate to each other through like porn and guns and. and yeah, right? and I will say that it was. It does give me it, the film did give me pause on my general sense that like Asian American 
doesn't exist because I remember that when I said that, mm-hmm. one of the people who gave me a lot of pushback was actually Oliver, who was a guest on our show. So funny. And Oliver was like, it does exist in these specific places. And mm-hmm. I think one of the specific places he was talking about was like suburban Los Angeles, you know, where like some large percentage of the student population in a high school is going to be Asian. And they're going to talk about boba and stuff like that. And for me to be like, what is the political point? You're all dumb sheep. You know, talk about the class struggle instead, you know, or like, or fight each other, you know, like you're not supposed to like that Japanese kid, Korean guy. Uh I think it's like stupid on my point, which I, you know, I I was mad at Oliver at that time. It's like, how dare you question me? And now I'm like, yeah, maybe Oliver was right. (laughs) (laughs) So I think, okay, I think the most Asian character is Derek. Is that fair to say? Why? Because he's the one who like wait wait which one's so Derek? Derek is, is the Derek? Ch- is the jock John Cho? No 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 Derek is the no, jock who the, is the captain of the decathlon. Yeah oh yeah 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 and he's the basically he's the bad person who puts us all into motion. Is he's that kind of a sociopath. He's the sociopath, he's a sociopath of the group. Yeah yeah. But yeah. he has this line about how um, like people like you and me, we don't have to follow the rules. We can make up the rules. You know this is all bullshit, right? It's just a game. People like you and me, we don't have to play by the rules. We can make our own. Like, what do you think he means when he says you and me? Is it just like we're special or is it like Mm. we're Asian Americans or superheroes? Because, you know, I presume like they were just like programmed. I think he meant super successful people. Yeah, I thought it was like a Nietzschean thing. Uberman. Yeah. Sure, but you don't think there was anything Asian or racial about that also? Like Well No, I don't. I think it was like people like you and me who are like at the top of our class who can do whatever we want. We don't have to follow these rules. That's how I interpreted it. I think there was a little bit of an Asianness in it. Yeah. Like we are we are both like super overachievers, but we are also not white. And yeah. we have like this kind right. of separate class that we can be together. Yeah. Hmm. And I, and I think yeah. there's something about the fact that, you know, like they all want to go to the IVs, but like, why do Asians want to go to the IVs? It's like, it's different than like a wasp whose parents have been going to the IVs for 10 generations, right? For them, it's like their parents have heard about the IVs and that's why they came to America. And, you know, they heard about Harvard and Yale. And, they know about testing. Yeah, exactly. Totally. Yeah. And it's like, it's like a different, it's like a nouveau riche, you know, kind mm-hmm. of like planning your yeah. flag move as opposed to the, my grandfather totally. went to Yale, my great grandfather went to Yale. Um, kind of distinction which isn't asian specific but it's like perhaps immigrant um yeah. specific so i don't know, there, I, I, so i guess what my takeaway was like there are a lot of ways you could symptomatically read all these characters as asian but they themselves never say it mm-hmm. and that's kind of okay i don't but i don't i think that you're reading that into them and i don't think that that's intended i think that justin lynn is trying to cr- posit them as much as typical southern california suburban kids as possible you know, like I think the Asianness is just social, basically, right? Like that they hang out together. But I don't, I don't think that like it has. I don't think that this film. I think that this film is trying to cut against the type of smelly lunchbox, mm-hmm. Joy Luck Club type of thing, in a very conscious way. And I don't think that like it is like that we should double read all these lines as being like about Asianness. <laughs> well, but I, I think there's a distinction that's being made, though, because Smelly Lunchbox and Joy Luck Club, it's like Asianness is bad and traditional and old. They're reading it as Asian, as modern and specific and American, right? Like for them, Asian doesn't is not what's they're, being Asian is not holding them back, right, from being popular. Them being Asian is like was giving them superpowers. That's my interpretation. Yeah. 
Like they're kind of turning it on its head. It's not this like troubled thing that the parents have like burdened them with that they have to deal with. It's actually this um, special identity they've been given that's specific to the 21st century or the late, 90, late 90s or whatever. That's that's my perhaps op- optimistic it, reading. Well, I think in the movie it's both though because they are like bullied and teased on some level for being yeah. Asian. Right. But then they create a mythology and the violent actions are part of the rebellion against that. Yeah. But I think like in the film, they don't need to talk about the Asian-ness because it's so natural and it's just understood. Yeah. that they like yeah. belong to and one that's, another. That's the yeah. skill of it, I think, right? Yeah. It's like that's where it just matters that it is aesthetic and social. Mm-hmm. Right. That it and that that I think is actually closer yeah. to I don't know. The only Asian people I I have my, a lot of my friends are Asian and the only Asians <laughs> that I talk to endlessly about Asianness are you two, you know, because we have a podcast. <laughs> but I knew Tammy before this podcast. <laughs> Tammy and I almost never talked about Asianness. You know, we just like gossiped about the media and people we dislike. You know, okay. <laughs> I have I have a theory. I have I have a theory. I could throw it out here now. I feel like so. I think I don't know, Tammy. You were born in Korea, but do you have memories of being growing up in Korea? Not really. Not super a lot. I have. I was born in Korea too, by the way. No, that's what I'm saying. I, my theory is yeah. like the difference between you and me. And I don't know if this is just like an observ- observational theory about. Asian Americans who have a memory of coming to this country and trying uh-huh. to fit in. Yeah, I don't have any memory of it either. Yeah. Well, b- my theory is like, for me, I was always an American. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's why I, I am more um, later in life looking for Asianness. Whereas mm-hmm. those who, I, like, just anecdotally, my friends and my family who have memories or were definitely like from Asia and their early life was structured around trying to fit in, mm-hmm. care less about that than I do. Does that make sense? Like I yeah, but I, I never think if you had gone to this high school, you wouldn't have had that. I think you would have found an Asian. You know, you'd have hung out with a lot of Asian kids. I think. But well, you, I think like, this grew high school in actually, Everett, Washington. I grew up around a lot of uh, Koreans, actually. So it was kind of like the same thing. It was purely aesthetic. It was yeah. like we didn't have any like language in common or anything. Yeah. So it was like ten percent Asian. You know, whatever. Oh, that is a lot. That's yeah, more that than the high school I went to. to yeah. Right. But I guess what I'm saying, well, my theory was that, like, Jay, you might have this early man of trying to fit into America. No, I don't, because I don't remember any of it, okay. but yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was, well, that was my theory. But yeah, the, the, I don't think it's personalized in that way, but I do understand what you're saying, which is just that um, basically these types of things are not part of the natural process of growing up. It is not an organic thought that one has because these uh, categories are all constructed. And that you sort of think about it socially as you're becoming socialized, right? And that a lot of that does happen middle school, high school. And then if you are hanging out with mostly Asian kids, you don't really talk about it all that much, you know? And then you go to college and then you join some fraternity and then you're inundated with it. And then you come up with all sorts of stupid shit <laughs> yeah. about it. Did you guys see that thing? Did you see? Did you go? Did you end up watching that thing? What the guy made that like performance art oh, piece no, based I forgot on to an article? On I wrote? Wait, explain no, I to the re- the listeners. Oh yeah, the, the I read an article for Tony Hazing a while ago, and uh, and I guess there was a performance art piece that got written up by the Times. Anyway, I, did, I was just asking if you'd seen it because I Is tried it watching it. I tried watching it, but then I got kicked out of the. Not because it was me, but I just like I couldn't get into the oh. viewing area. And so maybe I, you I should bring him it. on the show. <laughs> I should. Yeah. First of all, uh, my first question will be like, "Well, why didn't you tell me you were doing this?" Yeah. You know. 
Well, the first time I heard about this was that I read an article. I don't know who it was. I think it was like my neighbor or something like that sent me an article. Being like, oh, wow, you know, this is sounds so cool. And I was like, this is the first I've ever heard of it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, like it is uh, apparently that piece is also like a sort of meditation on these questions. You know, like, you know, why were these kids doing all these rituals about Asian-ness? Like, what does it mean? Like, why were they so Mm -hmm. desperate to try and figure out what this means? And yeah, I do think that like one of the nice things about Justin Lin's films is that they're kind of like just pure action, fun genre films in which those questions are implicit and they're implied. Andy, I do agree that they're implied at a certain level, Mm -hmm. but I don't think they're ever meant to be too deep. Yeah, Yeah, Um, and that's the question is like, is that good? Right. I I think it's good because I think the alternative is bad. (laughs) I'll put it that way. So and I think I think. You know, I, I kind of I don't want to go too like I don't I I was trying I was also making this joke with my friend who I was talking to about how all Asian stuff is bad. It's just like the fastest way that we could build our audience is to just bag on I know I'm like all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the worst literary analysis. I'm like, there's so many corny like works of art in every race. Well, <laughs> I know, I know. I, I like Hong Kingston, so we should um, uh, we should bring up asking about it. But I feel like Stephanie's character is sort of challenging that idea though that it, that it's okay to be a Twinkie basically right like yellow on the outside white on the inside like that's like she's troubled by it I think mm-hmm. you know and you can imagine her later in life being like who are my real parents like she gets a Chinese tattoo even though she yeah obviously it's just like it is like literally just an aesthetic at that point right mm-hmm. so I think her character kind of throws a wrench in this idea that it's okay just to be represent just to do representation so there is this news that uh, Justin Lin is like uh, has been kicking the tires on doing a TV update to like a uh, Better Luck Tomorrow. Really? What do you think would change yeah. between like you know when this came out and now? Like, do you think it would be similar? Oh do you think God. that it would? I th- it would be. Think there? I mean, I think it would be more. He I actually thought I'm talking in an interview about how he talked. He went to China and talked to like the people over there. And like, just doesn't think like there's a. He doesn't see him foresee himself working with China, Chinese no. companies ever. So I don't think he would do the transnational thing. But I think you know, like, Fresh Off the Boat has some Mandarin and has some references to China. I think what's Fresh Off? Oh, Eddie show. Yeah, mm-hmm. the the TV show. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Like so, I think and like Farewell. So I think the stuff in the last few years has tried to do that. For whatever reason, I don't think I don't think it would be well, is transnational thing it would it be or would it be more like more sort of like identity woke, like the new version of it? It might be like uh, Asian American identity woke. I don't think so. I think Justin Lin is not about all that stuff, even though I don't know him and have never talked to him about it. I don't know. Um I think he could go in an even more naturalistic Asian American direction in the sense that like now I think he could set better like tomorrow in like a ninety percent Asian American school. Yeah. And just yeah. go like far out because I think we now have more of a vocabulary to like understand like, oh, that's Cerritos high or whatever, you know? Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think that sure. actually could yeah. be kind of cool and different. Yeah. No, I'm with like you. Different and games, I think that yeah. would be pretty fun. Yeah. And if it was like That's so cool. I didn't know he was considering it. I have no idea if he is or not, but I know that it was discussed. You know, it was like one of those mm-hmm. things that you read about and then maybe it's made and maybe it's not made. That like so let let's just put a cap on this, like, cause I think that you know, we sort of dance around the the one question that we that I wanted to talk to at least about. Uh, you know, are these sort of like, are, is there something inherently corny about you know the the the, the Asian American 
genre of and look, I'm only saying this as somebody who is an Asian, clearly identifiable as an Asian American writer, you know, um, and most of the assignments I get are about Asian Americans. And I, I don't it's I'm not complaining about it. I like writing about that sort of stuff. I like thinking about these types of things. But I sometimes think like, you know, are there aesthetic limitations to that type of thing when you're constantly explaining yourself and the places that I write for are generally, you know, for rich white people. And so you, there is an element to it where you are explaining yourself to rich white people, right? Over and over again, Mm -hmm. Tammy, you, you also write for publications that are mostly for rich white people, right? Um, (laughs) Because we write for the same publications. So (laughs) I don't want, I don't want to hear some like, you know, you can't wiggle out of this one, Tammy. But like, um, (laughs) you can't just be like, no, but we must think about the time I wrote for like, you know, like a, Korean magazine was like, no, that doesn't count. Um, you know, like, is there something inherently corny about like the type of thing, the type of, I think we could agree that if like Better Luck Tomorrow did that over and over and over and over and over again, it would be a terrible, unbearable move. Oh my God. You know? Um, so is that a problem with the form? Like, is there a problem with the form of the immigrant story? Right? Like, I always think about this in mm-hmm. terms of like that book, The Interpretive Maladies by- I was um, just going to say Yeah. yeah. By Jim here, and I just remember being in. I had this my my one of my closest friends in the MFA program. I think he listens to this show. So, um, Ramesh, if you're listening, hello. Hi, uh, I'm about to blow up your spot, but like you know, like <laughs> he uh, he's he's this wonderful guy, and he was like he would get so mad about interpretive maladies, you know, and he was always like he's like. I fucking hate that book and it was around the time when it had just (laughs) (laughs) it was around the time when it just won the Pulitzer and I think about it too because I you know I hope that Jim Pula here is not reading this book you know and we are all successful Asian American writers but you know there is this thing where it's like the quiet immigrant story over and over and over and over again and the point of it is what, right? Like, what is it? It is like, we are a dignified people. And then you're like, oh, you know, who are you telling that to? And the answer is like the people who who read literary fiction who happen to mostly be like wealthy white people, yeah, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And so when you titillate them by telling these quiet stories of like dignity and stuff like that, is there something inherently corny about that, right? And like, is it better to just make a big fucking action movie or like a gangster movie? Yeah. And is that the only way to not be corny? These are the questions oh I think God. about all the time. Yeah. I've, yeah, I've kind of gone in that direction as I get older. I just kind of want to watch like a, a mystery or like a a crime a crime movie or something instead of a introspective. Yeah. I liked I liked Lahiri a lot when I was younger, and this might be my like identity phase. But I think as I've gotten older, I've thought if I can go back to those stories. I might I might be annoyed in the same way because it is the same story. <laughs> and yeah. yeah, maybe yeah. maybe there's limits. Maybe that's the question. Like you could tell it a few times, but there's something there. There's like a there's like a it's inherently like there's something finite about it. Mm-hmm. Um, What's the who's a Korean version of Jim Bohiri? We don't have to slander who the, whoever that person is. I don't even know who it would be. <laughs> I don't know if there's. It's not Chang Rai Lee, right? He's respectable. No. I don't, he's not telling the same kind of stories. I don't think that Chang Rai Lee's interest is telling like dignity stories about the immigrant experience. But he's a very respectable no, writer. No, I mean, just your life could potentially be something you could. There are certain readings of that because, like, he is like a quiet, the quiet neighbor guy. Yeah, yeah that's true. Um, but, but it's a good one book. about like, like isn't that the one book. about like comfort? I, yeah, I, I've read I've read these books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, Jay, the native I speaker think... is not that. Native speaker, native speaker is more. Is not. 
It's more in like line with like Midnight's Children or like Salman Rushdie, where it's so. like a sort of noisy big book, even yeah. though it isn't maybe read that way by racist people. But if you actually read the book itself, it's like it's a genre book, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a noisy genre book. Um, yeah. Anyway, part of the reason why I feel like this analysis fails is that every time I try and think of examples, <laughs> the only example I keep coming back to is Jim Bullahiri. Maybe my problem is that I don't like Jim Bullahiri, you know? But I don't know. And her books, too, or her writing, it's like that sneering class element, too, that's really bothersome. It's not just the, like, dignified Asian thing. It's like the dignified Asian thing as, like, refracted through Harvard. Yeah, yeah. Which is really, but I think she herself is trying to distance herself from that, right? Because she's now just writing in Italian and then translating herself. She's writing in Italian. Is she? Is she? uh, She moved to Rome. Elena Ferrante or something like that. Right. (laughs) Why is she writing in Italian? I had no idea. Bored. She won like all the awards. No, I I think her books are fun to read. I'm not. I'm going to defend her. She's a very good writer. Yeah. Fun to read. I like them. I don't like quiet books in general. I think that's my issue. I don't like books that are like serious, you know, like I hate Jose Saramago because like all of his books are so fucking serious, you know, and so like maybe I'm the wrong audience for it, but um I think a lot of like race literature, I don't know like what did Wesley ever write anything about if Beale Street could talk or did you guys see that? No. Cuz that movie is horrifyingly bad and I think it actually is like it's like has the, that same problem of like, I haven't read the the Baldwin original, but it has that same problem of kind of like pausing and having this moments of like, this is about blackness. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And it's yeah. just so heavy. It's yeah. like, it's really rough to get through. So I do, I think it's like, yeah, it's an immigrant problem, but maybe it's like an overcomings narrative problem of just like yeah. this confessional trap. One of the great pieces of film criticism ever is in the, film don't drink your juice in south central while being a menace in the hood <laughs> do you remember that oh. it was like the wayans brothers yeah, like yeah. spoof of all the gangster <laughs> films oh my God. and when they were making fun of uh when they were making fun of boys in the hood they would stop and they'd be like message you know and then <laughs> which is true of boys in the hood where they think these, these moments oh, where the film like pauses oh <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, that is definitely it's I don't know. I think about it because there's so many Asian writers now that are coming out, literary fiction writers. It seems like when I was growing up, when I was growing up, when I was in grad school in 2003, <laughs> it was like Don Lee and Chang Ray Lee. That was about it. There's like two of them. And now there's like so many that I can't even keep track of them to like even yeah. know if I should be jealous of their success or not. You know, like my pettiness filter is like not it's like I, there's too many. They even overwhelm my like general pettiness about this stuff. <laughs> and I have no idea if their books are super serious and representational in that sort of way or not. I know they're criticized as such, but I don't know if that's fair or not. I assume it's not fair because they're generally criticized as such by like people who I think are probably racist. But, um, you know, I, I don't know. The theater at Sundance. Well, no, I, I'm the opposite of that. I'm just like, just make a, you know, make a fun genre book. Like, who gives a shit, right, right. you know? Right, you're, you're um, Ebert. But, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not Ebert. I'm more like, I can't, I can't, if you talk about this heavy shit at all, or you, like, try and make me feel sorry for your immigrant family, I'm going to have the opposite reaction. <laughs> you know, like, Why'd you come here in the first place? Go back home if it's so bad. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jesus. All right. Well, on that note, <laughs> um, we're at an hour 30. Uh, 
So thank you for, we're going to keep doing this. I think the next film we're going to do is, I was very struck by Washu wanting to come and be the, uh, he wanted to be like the Joe House of our podcast and come back. <laughs> uh-huh. and so the next film we're going to do is we're going to do Chan is Missing. Oh, my God. Which is a wonderful thing to talk about this same topic. Chan is Missing, if cool. you don't know, is done by Wayne Wong, who ironically enough also was the director of the Joy Luck Club film. Oh, but Chan is right. Missing is one of my favorite movies. And the only reason I ever saw it was because Wa told me to go see it because it was playing at BAM. And it was like eye-opening and maybe i you know maybe through this lens like you can argue that it's not a good film but it is a great film you know have you seen it tammy i don't think i've seen it have you seen it andy no never heard of it oh my god it's so good it was uh we, we can discuss it later but yeah, i hope that all of you I've will go see it before we talk about it we're not gonna talk about it next week probably in a month or so but it's on youtube it's called chan is missing it's like a san francisco noir film detective story uh, but it's all set in chinatown and so, like, all the actors are, like, people who lived in San Francisco's mm-hmm. Chinatown. Um, I don't think all the actors are. Wayne made it on, like, a $15,000 budget yeah. or something like that that he got out of some art thing. And it became, like, this huge – Not, I don't think – I would not say it was a huge critical hit, but a lot of people paid attention to it, including Roger Ebert, you mm-hmm. know, at the time. So that, like, cements his – Our man he, in He Hollywood. might be the number one, <laughs> the number one Asian ally in terms of <laughs> – um and uh he um he it's it's a wonderful film and i i uh i encourage all of you to watch it we i think we'll do it next we'll have juan because i know he has a lot of thoughts on yeah. it and also because he was the one who told me to go see we it should, yeah. um, next time we should tweet in advance to tell people yeah. what we're going to talk about so everyone i think most people have seen better luck tomorrow though and they could yeah. i don't think most people have seen chance missing and now people have enough warning to watch it that'll be awesome yeah um okay Thank you for listening to the show. Uh, we do this every single week. I think soon we're going to put up a, we're going to make some sort of announcement on ways that you could support the podcast. We've done this free for a very long period of time. We are going to continue to do it free, but like, uh, you know, we would, there are some production costs and stuff like that that are involved. And so if you wanted to support the show, we're going, and we have gotten a lot of messages asking how to support the show, to which we've said, this is mostly my fault, you know. I don't know, like whatever. It seems like a big hassle. You know, maybe we'll just keep doing it for free. But uh, this does not mean you have to pay for the show. It just means if you would like to help us out, there will be a way in the upcoming weeks that we will publicize. Um, this show is run off of the support that we get from you guys and the um, and the emails and the response, which are always overwhelming. Uh, so please keep those coming. We have a lot of emails that are backlogged and we want to get to them on a separate show. Um, and so you can keep writing us at ttsgpod at gmail.com or you can... No, that's not right. It's time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or you can tweet at us at ttsgpod um, and you can DM us, you can contact any of us in any sort of way. We really do appreciate that. Um, and yeah, until next week... Uh, we will, yeah, I'll talk to you guys next week. Okay.